We're going through the Psalms, as you all know. I, I'm supposed to introduce myself. I'm Mark. Um, I'm filling in this morning for Peter, who's on vacation today, and we're thankful for that. Um, thankful that he can go on vacation, not necessarily thankful that I'm filling in for him, but thankful that um, he gets the opportunity to go. Um, we're going through the Psalms one a week, and so this being the 20th Sunday of 2023, we're in Psalm number 20. Um, Psalm 20 is um, not probably one that we read a lot. It's certainly not one of the famous ones, not one of them that, that people would say, oh, that's my favorite psalm. It might be for some people, but not, not for as many as uh, like Psalm 19 was last week. Um, it is a prayer for sure, and um, the, the best we can understand about it is that it's a prayer for the king, but written by King David, probably on the day that the king would go into battle. It's a prayer that is um, to call down the help of God. Um, so let's read that together and then talk about it and, and hopefully learn from it. To the choir master, a psalm of David May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. A prayer for the king. I, I should let you know that um, I'm, I try to organize my thoughts like, um, like our regular preachers do, that... Um, put it into an outline form, and I have such a struggle with that. It, you know, you can pray that I am able to organize my thoughts um, now and in the future, but it's always a struggle for me because I don't think in bullet points, and I, I think kind of linear in a flow of thought that doesn't, doesn't index itself for me. And I never, when I do an outline, I never find that three words that all start with the same letter fall into the outline, which most people are able to do, but I haven't been able to do that. But just three basic sections that uh, the, the prayer of the trusting is what we're studying, then how David trusted, and um, last, I don't even remember how I titled it, but how we should trust. And... Um, those are the three sections. So first, to just look at the prayer. First of all, uh, a king is a powerful man, the most powerful man in a nation. 
And yet, the prayer is filled with appeals to God to help the king, indicating, it's implying and, and kind of confirming that the king is weak. If any of us watched the coronation of, of, of the king of England recently, we would have noticed, it would almost be impossible to not notice, that many, many prayers were offered to help the king. And that's, that's how it should be, because the king is just a man. And as the Bible tells us, as the Bible reminds us often, we are without any strength except for what God gives, except for how he supplies it. In Psalm 100, the psalmist says, It is you that hath made us, and we... It is he that hath made us, and we are his. That we are made by God. Then when... Um, when Daniel is talking to Belshazzar, who had, uh, had honored the, the gods of gold and silver and had neglected God, Daniel said, I should read it, Daniel said to Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, the God in whose hand your breath is and whose are all your ways you have not honored. The king of Babylon was sustained by the hand of God. By, by God decreeing that he could have his next breath, he was sustained. When God would remove that decree, he would die. It's that simple. It's that dependent. We are that dependent on the God who made us. In, um, in Acts 17, Paul is talking to the people of Athens. And he says, of, of them and of all of us, in him we live and move and have our being, always decreeing that we are fully, constantly dependent on God. So praying is important. It's, it's a necessity. And it acknowledges, in a sense of humility, we aren't, we aren't self-sustained. We aren't self-made. And so the prayer begins with um, a request that God would answer, protect, and send help and support in the first couple of verses, um, answer in the day of trouble, in the name of God protect you, send help from the sanctuary, and give you support from Zion. Um, that, that the God who made everything would sustain the king. And, and it's made note of where that help comes from. It comes from the sanctuary, which in David's day, Housed the Ark of the Covenant, depending when this was written. It's a significant history of the Ark of the Covenant in David's time. Um, the predecessor of David was Saul. The Ark was never in the tabernacle during Saul's time because Eli, the, the priest who preceded Saul, consented to the elders of Israel when they were fighting in a battle and the elders of Israel had the bright idea that if we take the ark out of the tabernacle and take it to the battle we will win because nobody can defeat the God that the ark represents but their confidence wasn't in God it was in the ark itself in the the physical representation of God and so they, they took the ark into battle, and it was captured by the Philistines. The Philistines took it to the, the temple of Dagon, and it, um, the, the statue of Dagon fell on his face. And 
it'll be too long if I, if I explain all of these, but I just want to point your mind to that, that that was, that was the view that people before David had of the ark, that almost like a trinket, like a good luck charm or whatever, it would, it would then come to the battle and it would defeat the enemies. So they had confidence in the ark of God. But David is not expressing that even though he says send help from the sanctuary, he's, he's expressing confidence in the God of the ark. That the ark doesn't need to go. God will send the help. God will supply the needed sustaining power that as the king goes to battle, God will go with him. We don't need to take a box. God is not in that box. God is free from that, and he is, he is omnipresent. Um, the, the next request I want to make note of is that God will remember and accept the sacrifices the king has offered. That, that um, the king is also in need of the sustaining power of God and the forgiveness of God. That what was offered to God was in, uh, in recognition that he has given us all that we have that he is the one that keeps us, that he's the one that sustains us, that he's the one that forgives us when we fail. Um, David put it in, in these terms when he, in Psalm 51, is giving a prayer of repentance. He says, The sacrifices of the Lord are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So in this prayer for the king, there's an implied part of it that says we want the king to be broken and contrite before God so that his offering is acceptable, that it is not despised, that he would have regard for that offering. We don't want the king to be exalted to the point where he doesn't realize that he needs that forgiveness and he needs to be broken before a holy God. So that's, that's an aspect of the prayer as well that God will grant the king his heart's desire. Now think of all the human rulers that you know and know of, that you've had as, as a ruler in your community or in your country, and that rule the world now. Think of all of them. How many of them would you pray this prayer that their heart's desire would be fulfilled? It's a scary thought, isn't it? Because only if the heart of the king is submitted to the heart of God would we want that to happen. And that's the condition the Bible describes of David's heart. It says of David that he was a man after God's own heart. So the prayer is a trust in God, but also expresses a trust in God's servant to be submitted to the will of God. And, and, and that is um, the privilege of the people of Israel when they had a good king. David being noted as a very good king, though many failures that we know about as well. But in human terms, he was one of the best. And today, we see the flaws of our rulers, but we're still commanded to pray for them as well. And so as we pray for them, our prayer is that their heart would be submitted to God and then that their heart's desire could be fulfilled. The Bible says, it says, 
He will give you the desire of your heart. It's in Proverbs. Commit your way to the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. I think I'm, I'm really messing up that quote. But the, the idea is not that God will change his mind and give me what I want, but my heart will be changed so that I will ask for what he wants. <clears throat> that God will preserve the king and return him victorious to, from the battle. The king is vulnerable when he goes to battle. If the king is killed in battle, it could mean that all of us who are the subjects of the king are then now captive to the, the victor in the battle. It could mean that we are taken as, um, as the spoils of war. And so the, the need for the king to be victorious is very important so that we can live in peace under the reign of the king. We declare in our prayer that our trust is not in the human inventions of man, in the weapons of war, in the ability of humans to win a battle. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. We trust, in contrast to that, in the name of the Lord our God. They fall and we stand. If indeed we trust in the name of the Lord our God, they collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. And finally, the prayer concludes with kind of a comprehensive statement, kind of recapping all that's been said in the prayer. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. So, that's the prayer David said should be prayed for the king and certainly was prayed for him, probably sung. It's written to the choir master, so it's probably sung um, in, in the king's presence before he went to battle. So how did it work its way out and is there some way to get a view of David as king and this psalm, this prayer being manifested in the life of David? Well, just a little bit more of background. Um, Saul, who preceded David as king, failed to do the Lord's will, and he was, he was rejected by God to continue as king. And Samuel grieved for Saul, and, and um, the Lord said to Samuel, why, why do you keep grieving for Saul? I've rejected him. We're moving on. I've chosen a man after my own heart. So Saul was sent to the house of Jesse, who had eight sons, to ordain, to, or, ordain, to um, anoint the next king. And it, all through the ranks of Jesse's sons, they got to um, the last one who was uh, watching the sheep in the field, and it was David. And they called him in, and Samuel said, this is the one that the Lord has chosen to be king. So he was anointed. That's chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. Um, so I believe chronologically it's, it's most likely that the, the next chapter which is probably one of the most famous chapters in the life of David is 1 Samuel 17 and if you want to turn there we'll be looking at parts of it 1 Samuel chapter 17 and 
you're going to recognize this story. I'm sure if you've ever been to Sunday school, you'll recognize it. <clears throat> it starts out, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah and, Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah. And then as they're gathered to battle against the Philistines, the Philistines are on one side and the Israelites are on the other. And you know where this story's leading, uh, but there's a giant that comes out in verse 10. The Philistine, whose name is Goliath, stands nine feet tall, comes out and says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So that's, that's how the setting is set up for us in 1 Samuel 17. Then David arrives. David comes because his, his father sent him to go and take provisions to his brothers. His three oldest brothers are in the army of Saul fighting the Philistines and David brings some cheese and some parched corn and some things to help sustain them for the battle. And when David gets there, like happened every morning, the, the, the giant comes out and he repeats those same words, defying the armies of Israel and their God to, to come and fight with him. It would seem logical that we would be afraid of this man. He's bigger, stronger, more experienced, was a warrior, had weapons that were far superior to Israel's weapons. And so to be afraid of Goliath was the normal, the smart thing to do. And so they all ran away. They hid from the, the voice of Goliath. But David, when he heard it, he said, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Well, then his brothers argued with him and they kind of disdained him. Who do you think you are? Where did, where did you leave those few sheep and come here? It's the mischief of your heart that brought you here. So they had no regard for David's offer to fight the Philistine. This is ridiculous. But he, he stuck to it. We know that. And he, he tells Saul, who also told him, this, this is silly. He's a man of war, and you're just, a, you're just a young boy, probably a teenager. And he responds to Saul, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So the curses of Goliath display where his confidence is, right? He trusts in like chariots or horses, he trusts in his spear and his armor and his physical strength and his size and in his intimidating presence to defeat this little shepherd boy. But David, in, in running towards him, quotes almost exactly the same words. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And then later in, the, in, the, in that passage, he says, And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, 
and he will give you into our hand. So the answer to the prayer of Psalm 20 is being manifested in this event. Uh, and I hope we can see it in, in more ways as well. We know how the battle went. David did defeat the giant. He was unarmed, except with a, a, a sling and five stones, and only took one stone. And he killed the giant, defeated him, and the glory went to God. So the heart of David, as, as, it, as the request is in the psalm, may you... May God give you your heart's desire. The heart's desire of David the king was that the glory of God would be shown, that the people would see that he is God, not the God of the Philistines and not the people of the Philistines and not the giant of the Philistines, that God himself would get the glory. That's the heart of David. The heart of David um, is, is being fulfilled. The desire of his heart for God's glory is being fulfilled in the event with, with Goliath. Then the, the request in the psalm is that uh, he would be preserved, his life would be preserved. Of course it was preserved. Um, that the Lord would save his anointed and that um, in verse 5, may we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all his petitions. In, Psalm, or in 1 Samuel 18, they're returning back. We might remember this story because of how Saul reacted to it, but without thinking about Saul's reaction, let's just think about what happened. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands, fulfilling the, the request of the prayer. May we shout with joy over your salvation and in the name of God set up our banners. That's exactly the spirit of, of what they're doing, greeting the conquering king coming back from the battle, alive and well and victorious to, to the shouts of the people who, who are um, thankful that God has preserved the king. <clears throat> so we can learn from those lessons. We can learn that we should be praying, we should be submitted to God, we should acknowledge our need for God, and we should pray for each other, and we should pray for our leaders. All of those are important lessons, that we should be like David in our trust in God, that we should um, model that behavior. And it's, those stories are certainly not less than that to us. They are, they are that. They are lessons of how we should pray and how we should behave. But they are more than that, I believe. Because I believe they point beyond that to another king. See, even though the heart of David was after God's heart, even though in, especially in the the account we read of David and Goliath, he was obedient and he represented a servant of God. And we don't find a flaw in his behavior. We, we follow that story when we follow David and we see that was not always this, the, the case. 
That, that's not always what happened with David. And not only did David fall into his own sin, he did not always follow the Lord, but he eventually died. Then Solomon took over the kingdom, and then he died. And then his son took over, and then the descendants of David all through the ages became king and died. So none of them fulfilled the longing of the people fully, and none of them stayed in that office. None was perfect, none was eternal. And yet, in David's time, there was a promise by God recorded to us in, in the book of Samuel that the descendant of David there would be a descendant of David who would set up the kingdom that would last forever and that that descendant would reign forever. Um, in Matthew's gospel, he begins the, the, the gospel by saying, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. More than 15 times in the New Testament, Jesus is called the son of David. So not only did David foreshadow and point forward in a prophetic way to another king, but Jesus became the fulfillment of all the longings of the people, of all the longings of those that followed God. So it's, it's more than just fulfilling prophecy. It's it is fulfilling the longings of the hearts of the people that follow God. So, today, the king, um, our king Jesus, is promising the victory. And he comes to the battle. But we need to recognize that battle we're not fighting a nine-foot philistine who comes out and taunts us and intimidates us with his size but we certainly can see the picture of the intimidation of our adversary when we see the reality of what we face what do we face we not only face the certainty of our own physical death, but we face the reality of our guilt before a righteous God. And as that becomes apparent to us, whenever it does, whenever in our life we see that we aren't capable of standing in judgment before God, we realize there's a battle and there's a giant, so to speak, that's bigger than us and stronger than us. And it's a true statement. It is right for us to be afraid of that giant. It's right for us to be wondering about our death, to be wondering how are we going to face the judgment of a righteous God. In, um, in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan puts it this way as he describes the, um, the awareness of Christian in the very beginning of the book. He, he becomes aware of that. And this is how he describes it. The evangelist comes to him and says, why are you in such distress? I can see that you are. And he says, sir, I perceive by the book in my hand, the book in my hand, that I am condemned to die. And after that, 
to come to judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second. So the sobriety of that eventuality should make us fear, should make us react like Christian. Where will I turn? Where can I go for relief of the the sin burden on my back and the thought of the judgment of God against me? Is there a place I can go? So to that battle, to that um, shouting of of the giant, God sent his son. Not with provisions for us, but with the offer to be the champion against our adversary. With the, the, the offer to be the one who will defeat that giant. Who will win that battle. But he doesn't win that battle because he avoids death like David did. He doesn't win the battle over our sin and over our penalty of death by avoiding it himself. He conquers death by going to the place of punishment for us and paying the punishment for us and returning from that place of punishment as evidence of what? That his sacrifice and his offering was accepted. That God the Father had regard to the offering of the Son. In it's quoted in in um, First Corinthians fifteen. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So in that battle that's coming, where's your trust? This morning is is an important question. I want to pause for a moment and, and, and ask all of us to focus. Where is our trust in that battle? Why should you be given access to the eternal bliss of a presence with God who created you? Why? I've been, I've been so good. You know, I've done so many. Look at this list. Look at my resume. Oh, I was baptized. Um, I, I, I give money. I'm certainly better than my neighbor. I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible. I do all these things. No, those actually are not the promise of God. That's not how we win that battle. That's not how he wins that battle. The battle is won only by faith in the one who endured death and came back from it having offered the only acceptable payment for our sin. That is the only answer. We do not trust in horses and chariots, in good works, in all that we can do, in all that we can give to God, none of that is going to win the battle. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
I, I um, asked Michael if he, we could sing a new song today, and, it, it, and we'll sing it together in a moment after we pray. It's a song um, that has a lot of words, and, and it's new for us, and I don't know that it's that easy to sing. I asked him if, we th- if he thought we could sing. He said he thinks we can, so let's all help. <laughs> um, but I'm moved by the song because it brings me to worship as it reflects on four of the times in the Old Testament where Jesus is pictured but unfulfilled. Um, It's Adam, Isaac, Moses, and David. And we we could do a dozen others in the Old Testament who point to Christ and leave us at the end of their story with a longing for the true king, for the true and better that fulfills what we need. Because no human ever has done that. No human ever can do that. But as we long for that, the great blessing is that he does give it. And in Christ, all of those longings are fulfilled. Will you come to him? Will you realize that? Would you put your faith in him, not in yourself, not in anything else, only, only in Jesus, the champion who won the battle? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that on every page of your word, your glory is declared. And sometimes we have to think about it. Sometimes we have to dig. And we pray that your glory is displayed and was displayed. And we ask that you would diminish any, any um, part of us that was Mark and that you would exalt the part that was Jesus. That you would make us to realize what a great privilege it is to sing about you, to worship you, and to be united with you for all eternity as your children and as the subjects, the willing and happy subjects of your kingdom to our great king. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Did our king receive the desires of his heart in response to the prayer of Psalm 20? What's the desire of his heart? If you were here last week, you saw part of that, probably a concise and a a great synopsis of the desire of the heart of our king on the piece of wood that was out there to honor our our youth pastor. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Yes, indeed. Hallelujah. He has given him the desire of his heart, and you are that desire. This will conclude our service this morning.